Hello, this message is for listeners of the audio version of the podcast and not the YouTube audience. The cost of hosting the audio version of this podcast on Podbeam is now due. When I upload my episodes to Podbean, the platform then makes the podcast available on your favorite podcasting app, allowing people around the world to access it. The yearly cost to host the audio podcast is currently $108. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support it, please consider donating to help with this cost. Donations can be made via our Venmo account, which is at teacher in Zion. All one word. Thank you. Welcome to Teacher in Zion podcast. The name of today's episode is The Accidental Cultist, or That Time I Joined a Cult. I had a number of listeners um, asking to hear that story, and it is a good story, I think, but also a lot of good lessons to it. So I thought I would share today um, what happened um, and get into the lessons that I learned. You know, the year was 2006. Sprint had just purchased Nextel, and the Sprint headquarters in Overland Park, Kansas, were hiring lots of people to fill position in the company's internal IT support help desk. I was one of those new hires and I had just moved here from, well, Iowa, I guess, but I was originally from Michigan. My previous world job was working for the state of Michigan, but that was two years previous. So how do we explain a two year gap on someone's resume due to joining a cult? I decided to simply add the cult experience uh, to my resume and simply emphasize the techie part of my role there. And that seemed to work. So I got a new job. And in our first team meeting at Sprint, the manager asked us to go around the room and uh, all of us say or state what our name is and what we did at our last job. So when it got around to me, I said, Hi, my name is Doug Hatton, and I managed the website for an anti-technology cult. The room burst out in laughter. And with a smile on my face, I said, and you think I'm joking. I enjoy the humor that can be found in ironic situations. And looking back, I can certainly enjoy the irony-infused nature of my experience. But let's start at the beginning, so I can explain how I first became involved with this cult. Around the turn of the century, almost 15 years after the split that took place in the RLDS church, my aunt and uncle heard from some friends uh, about a former 70 out of the RLDS church, a man who had spent some years doing missionary work among the Indians, but who was now reportedly translating the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, or in other words, the record of the brother of Jared. This would be the first time that most people from an RLDS background would likely have heard such a claim. However, before this, 
there would be at least one other man from an LDS background who also claimed to have translated the sealed portion. I didn't find out about him until later, uh, and this man later confessed that he had faked the whole thing in order to show people what blind followers they were and how stupid they were, his own words, um, how they were willing to believe anything. And even stranger than that is that he then later recanted from his confession and told people that it was actually real again. And there are people who are still willing to believe in that record to this day. Even recently, other men have come forward claiming to have translated the sealed portion and, and other records of dubious origin. Will the real sealed portion please stand up? The answer is none of them. And we can know that for a certainty because of what the Book of Mormon actually tells us about this record and the timing of its coming forth. But that requires that we know and pay close attention to what this important record actually tells us. More on that later. As you can imagine, there was some real excitement regarding the prospect of this record coming forth. I mean, what if the claim was real? I mean, and considering that the RLDS church appeared to be an apostasy and with many of the restoration divided and unsure how to proceed, most people uh, were simply waiting for the Lord to fix the one true church. They couldn't fathom God doing otherwise. I mean, after all, it was the true church, right? But so far, there seemed to be little hope. Some people lost heart and departed the faith over the years. Also, we began to lose our children. The conservative independent restoration branches were composed of mostly older members, and their numbers dwindled as the elderly passed away and those who were middle-aged members became elderly over the years people began to wonder what the fate of the church would be while many fell asleep in their delusions that god was just waiting to see who would be faithful believing that he was still going to come along and save the one true institutional church others may have begun to feel a certain desperation though a crisis of faith maybe unless you are one of those who transferred their faith away from the institutional church and placed it firmly on christ alone making jesus and not the church their true foundation red flag number one the situation with the rlds church then just like how many LDS people have now begun to lose faith in their institutional church, has the potential to make some people ripe for deception. When it becomes clear to us that Satan has taken over the institutional church as the righteous flee, Satan sets up a variety of snares, including spiritual predators and con men who, in sheep's clothing, pretending humility, inwardly imagine themselves to be the next Moses, one mighty and strong, or Joseph Smith reincarnated. Basically, they are both deceiving and being deceived, even as Timothy tells us. 
um, and imagining that they are the, uh, the prophet, really, of the Lord to lead God's people and deliver them. But what we have not understood, and even Joseph Smith, I believe, failed in this, is that Moses and others like him were a type of Christ, a type and a shadow of things to come. Now that Christ has come, we should not look for another deliverer. Those who do misunderstand the scriptures and they are setting themselves up for a fall. When this sealed book was published by the Iowa cult, for most RLDS people, the concepts presented in it were a bridge too far, doctrinally speaking. And as a result, very few people truly checked it out, or they rejected it almost immediately. Interestingly, the cult did not begin with the publishing of that book, but had actually gotten its start 15 years previously. What I did not know then, but discovered during the second year that I was there in this community of people, is that the entire community was originally started as a result of a false prophecy, a lie. You see, the leader, his name is Ron, had a following in town during the mid eighties. And at some point he had purchased some land just outside of town in order to start a community. And this community was supposed to be the new place of Zion. Red flag number two. Be aware anytime a man or institution tries to tell you that God has changed his plans on the location of Zion. He never moved the location of the original Jerusalem. He also is not going to change the place of the new Jerusalem. In several revelations given through Joseph Smith, God stated that Zion would never be moved out of her place. It is the plans of men that are frustrated, we are told, not the plans of God. And Brigham Young tried to make Utah the new place for Zion. The cult leader, Ron, tried to tell us Zion was now in Iowa. The false prophet, Mauricio, is trying to make Brazil the new place for the gathering. Regardless of your thoughts about those revelations from Joseph Smith about the place of Zion, we know that God will establish his truth in the mouth of multiple witnesses. At one time, long ago, a friend of mine had pointed out that there really was just one witness regarding the place of Zion. True enough, I thought. However, over the last two decades, I have encountered so many other witnesses without even going to look for them. Many of them have no association even with the restoration at all. So that this matter has pretty well been settled in my mind. I have mentioned some of them before, and I will hit a few highlights here. But the number of solid, independent witnesses I have personally run into just myself um, is around up 20 or more. For example, several Native American tribal leaders have witnessed to the sacred nature of the temple law and the independence area as being a sacred land and the place where Christ once visited them. Additionally, Bob Jones, who actually lived in independence for a while, an evangelical prophet, 
had a testimony of independence and the Kansas City area of a great work that would unfold in this area by God in the last days, which would kick off of a worldwide revival and the final harvest of the last days. Rick Joyner of Morning Star Ministries, uh, also no connection to Mormonism, had a series of visions regarding the last days, which he published in his book, The Harvest. And in it, he wrote that he saw these visions of Independence, Missouri, that it would become a blessing to the entire world. That is surely a strange thing to just pull out of the air uh, as an evangelical, to have a vision and specifically see Independence, Missouri, as the blessing to the whole world. Why? And then a couple of years back, we ran into uh, Caesar, who's a pastor of Shift KC, uh, Shift Kansas City, uh, equipping ministry, who had moved from Texas to open a church that's just south of Independence, Missouri. Um, and he stated that, that God had told him that he was to come here. Um, the very first time I attended one of their services, this man shared how he had been shown a vision of the Kansas City area, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, um, and how it would become uh, essentially a holy city, uh, a beacon of light to the world, and that there would be a highway. He, he saw a highway of, of angels ascending and descending from heaven to this city and this place. And as he spent about 20 minutes unfolding this vision to my, to the uh, audience there, my wife and I would look at each other and say, this is a vision of Zion, it, precisely a vision of Zion. And just recently, uh, we ran into a large group of Christians at a restaurant who were excitedly discussing the, the doings of God. And my wife introduced herself to them. And, and that's when we discovered uh, another movement and group of people called the Convergence. I think it's called Convergence Point Apostolic Hub, um, which is centered in Independence, Missouri. And this group was formed in part because of a vision and which they saw that the Kansas City area and Independence itself being a spiritual hub in these last days. And it was pictured in this vision like a wheel and it was the hub of a wheel and there were these spokes that were going out uh, into all the different directions around the world and so it saw this place as a center of that and they specialize in being an equipping ministry the equipping ministry the fivefold ministry that we find in ephesians 4 which seems to be a familiar theme and then we cannot also ignore the very real connection between harry s truman uh, president of the United States, and along with him, his hometown of Independence, Missouri, uh, to the modern Jewish nation state of Israel. The gathering of the Jews there would not have been possible if it were not for Truman. And about 15 years ago, a delegation from Israel actually came to Independence and to deliver a gift to the city of Independence as a gesture of thanks for what Harry Truman had done for the Jewish state. And as we know, those who bless Israel are blessed by God. Regardless of what you believe about the place of the New Jerusalem, one thing we know is that God has always known where it would be. His plans are not frustrated. He has foreseen all things. Whether or not Joseph Smith had made some mistakes, 
God can and does still reveal himself and speak to men, even sinful men, and use them for his purposes. Uh, it's been my experience that when I have fallen away or I'm made some mistakes that God doesn't stop talking to me. Um, and so I don't have a cutoff point with Joseph Smith. I definitely can see where things began to go off the rails and I see some very definite mistakes he made. And there's things I don't trust and don't line up or don't seem to be in harmony with what God has shared in the past. And I think he got off, uh, off the path a bit. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he never heard from the Lord again, or that God did not share things with him from time to time. Thank the good Lord in heaven that he will work with us in spite of our sins and in spite of the fact that we may be deceived about this thing or that thing or have some wrong bit of doctrine. Because if it were not so, we would all be lost now. I mean, completely. All of us would be bound for hell and have no opportunity whatsoever to come back if God were so harsh. But his grace extends to those who love him. And even when they are in error, he still loves them. And in as much as they will listen to him on certain things, he will speak to them. And he doesn't cut us off because we're wrong about a certain thing. The Lord spoke through Joseph and said that the Gentile church would not be allowed to pollute the land of Zion. And that the rebellious would be removed from that land. And so they were. We should not expect that God would change the place he has appointed every time there's a hiccup or every time man commits sin, as if he could not foresee the future. I mean, God stands in the midst of eternity and he sees all things. He knows every decision we will make. A third red flag I'd like to mention here is that false prophets frequently seem to be trying to convince people that independence will experience a sudden calamity. Uh, whether it's a nuclear explosion or a laser weapon from outer space, I kid you not, and that's from the Iowa cult leader, or by volcanic eruption and a poisonous cloud, which Mauricio in Brazil has been teaching. And many cultists imagine this is how God will cleanse Zion. These false prophets love to talk about how, historically speaking, Jerusalem of old was destroyed. So they love to make those comparisons with the new Jerusalem. However, the prophets do not bear this out. In regards to the lost tribes and the gathering of Israel, the northern tribes and the gathering to the new Jerusalem, uh, this is not what it says. Additionally, the parable of Zenos from the Book of Mormon reveals this to be an error. In fact, it goes to great pains to carefully explain to us in great detail that unlike how it was done in the past, the redemption of Zion, which is the restoration and the gathering together of Israel, which is the northern tribes, will be brought about by a process of slowly grafting in a few good people and then pruning out a few of the wicked at a time giving time for each of these smaller grafts to take. And in this way, God will redeem it bit by bit until the whole tree is finally restored. Go read it for yourself. The parable of Zenos, uh, the vineyard in the Book of Mormon. The parable plainly states that it will not be hewn down and the land completely cleared as had been done in times in the past. This is contrary, of course, to the popular teaching that God's people will be planted here 
or in the place of Zion only after the destruction of the wicked. But that's not the case. That's not what the prophets say. I was even shown a powerful vision of this some years back and could see how this might take place. And that vision stood in agreement with what the true prophets of God have revealed in both the Bible and in the Book of Mormon. The one scripture, every one of these false prophets I have known love to quote as evidence for this widespread destruction coming to the land of Zion is, is just one. And that's where it is said in Doctrine and Covenants uh, 101 uh, in LDS or 98 in the RLDS that the pure in heart shall return to build up the waste places of Zion. Every time I hear this, I try to make them an offer to drive them around the city of independence so I can show them the waste places. Not only is it physically, but also a spiritual wasteland in many places. But this city can be taken back one neighborhood at a time, even as I saw in the vision. The people of God can repurpose or they can tear down and build up new places and renew the city bit by bit, even as in the parable of Zenus depicts, to the point where it reflects the glory of God. Now, getting back to how the cult in Iowa got started, Ron had purchased the land to start a community where the new city of Zion was to be built. The only problem was that he couldn't get his followers to fully commit and leave everything behind in order to live this primitive lifestyle with him on the land as he had envisioned. And that's when he got a revelation that the end of the world was soon coming. And that prophecy came with a date. His followers and everyone else they had warned were told that if they were not moved out to the land by that date, it would be too late. Only the righteous on that land would be spared. Additionally, many of his followers were encouraged to borrow everything they could, whether it's money or tools or equipment. Um, and with the idea that once the apocalypse came, they would never have to uh, return those tools or pay those loans back. I was told this story by two of the senior members of that community who had been there from the very beginning. They nonchalantly talked about this during my second year there while I was driving them around one day to do errands on behalf of the community. They had no idea that I already knew that I was going to be leaving that place. I kept it to myself and it seemed that the spirit saw fit to cause them to trust me enough to open up about these things so that I would learn about them before I departed. So that is how this community was born. It was the result of a lie. The date that was given for the fall of Babylon came and went. Tools, equipment, and loans would have to be paid back. The justification given for this false prophecy was that God knew what it would take to motivate them to do what was right. I was told numerous times that God knew that they would never have moved out to the land without that threat. There was never an admission at any time that this was a false revelation or that Ron had been deceived in some way. It seems God was in on this, thereby implicating him, uh, basically making God a liar. In fact, this would set a precedent for a teaching in that community that I would not learn until after my wife and I had moved there. 
that it was okay to lie to someone so long as the end result is deemed to be a positive one. They even used a distorted version of a scripture from the Bible to support this teaching. So that brings us to red flag number four. Be aware of people or institutions who ignore a multitude of scriptures pointing out that a particular act is sinful, but cling to just one scripture that has to be interpreted in order to justify that act as suddenly being okay. I count the justification of polygamy as just one example of this. Those good people who were initially tricked into selling everything, quitting their jobs and moving out to the land, remain there for about 15 years, alone, raising their families, separate from the world. It was a hard living, a lifestyle that was far more primitive than even the Amish. This lifestyle was the result of the doctrines that they believed. During all those years, the only growth they ever experienced came by way of giving birth, until they published their record. After that, they would garner some interest, and people would occasionally come to visit and investigate, but only a very small handful would commit to anything, and that included my wife and I. The doctrine contained in the book that Ron published was extreme enough to turn off nearly every RLDS person. Its theology was truly off the rails, calling for a radical departure from living anything remotely like a normal life. However, that might have actually been part of its draw for me. I love nature and camping in a tent, etc. And instead of being repelled by the lifestyle, the, the radical nature of the doctrine made me all the more willing to stop and consider it. After all, what reasonable man would come up with this? I mean, surely I thought to myself, if this were a deception, Satan would have made it more palatable. Hitler once wrote that if you tell a lie, the bigger you make that lie, the more likely it is that people will believe it. And one of the lessons I learned from this experience is that Satan has a deception tailored for each one of us. Not every deception is for everyone. This deception appealed to me because of its call for sacrifice and its close ties to nature in the name of living righteously. I was also more willing to be open to it because of the hurt that I'd experienced in the church over the years. Almost everyone else I knew found it mostly unappealing. The prospect of giving up air conditioning, for example, electricity and running water or going to the bathroom in an outhouse in the middle of the night in the deep of winter snow. Most people won't go that far. Not to mention that the teachings and doctrines would be a big stretch for most people. There was a deception that would come along about 20 years after this that most of the members of my church would fall for, one that was far more palatable for them. We must just keep in mind that while truth might, at times, lead us to go in a radical direction, so can a lie. Just being a peculiar people, in and of itself, doesn't make us right with God. I mean, we could set up a religion where people worship and pray to a fluffy bunny and be counted as peculiar. 
Ron, the community's prophet and high priest, had previously spent some years living among the Navajo. And while there, he developed his own peculiar theology that was neither RLDS or Navajo. It was a hybrid of ideas that were heavily influenced by his interpretation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. His own vivid imagination coupled with the influence of writings and arguments made by biblical critics, Mormon critics, and a familiar spirit that masqueraded as Christ, wrought the development of a completely new religion based on the concept that the holy angels or holy watchers are actually physical elements on the earth. Things like horses, the wind, grass, and water are seen as holy angels, whereas the fallen watchers or Nephilim are defined as many of the elements used to build our modern civilization. So things like oil, electricity, copper were considered evil spirits. It's a fascinating idea. The end result is that you must forsake technology and pretty much remove yourself from the world completely and live in a totally primitive state. One of the primary focuses seemed to be removing yourself from the world to isolate yourself inside of a righteous community and not get stained by all the sins of the world and so forth. The only problem with this is that Jesus explicitly commands his disciples to be in the world, but not of it. And by that, I believe we are not to withdraw completely and only ever associate with other believers, but that we are to be a positive influence in the world, witnessing of Christ. One of the objectives of this community was to hide from the world and the Antichrist until God would bring his judgment and cleanse the world. And then they could go out and take dominion of the earth, I guess. But if the disciples of Jesus merely hide and wait for God to do his work, then what impact do we make? Why are we even here? There's no witness in the world. We essentially give up the fight and abandon people over to Satan and let him have his way. What happened to the gates of hell would not prevail against his church? Gates are a defensive object in a stronghold. We are supposed to let our light shine and confront the darkness. We are sent to help set the prisoners free. Later, as I began to uh, really ponder the practicalities of this man's teachings, there were simply too many logical fallacies to the theology. For example, copper is considered a fallen watcher, a particularly bad one at that, to be avoided at all costs, and yet both brass and bronze are considered holy watchers. Well, the problem here is that both brass and bronze are composed of copper and other elements, along with like zinc and tin. So a holy watcher or a holy angel is at least partly composed of an element that's supposed to be an unholy watcher. I brought this and other questions to the group's prophet, but never got a satisfactory answer. Over time, I discovered other problems, which any amount of questioning would expose. 
This is probably one of the reasons that Braun never released any kind of comprehensive list of holy and fallen watchers. We were only told about some of them. I repeatedly asked for this list, but was denied. I checked around, and nobody, even the most senior members of the community, had any idea what all the other fallen watchers might be. The essence of Ron's teaching was that the use of these fallen watchers, especially anything that's used electricity or petroleum, etc., would make you unclean. And this is why we're not allowed to, uh, to have them in the community. Concerns uh, about being clean or potentially becoming unclean were a constant worry in this community. The influence of the Dead Sea Scrolls was particularly heavy in this, being very Old Testament in its view. For example, just going to a funeral of a loved one or touching a dead body could make you unclean. And this is why the priest and the Levite likely passed by the man who had been beaten and left for dead by the thieves in the parable of the Good Samaritan. There were ceremonies that were designed to make one clean in this community. And I was specifically told by their prophet that uh, if I went through that ritual, I would be clean and I would feel the difference. And it worked every time, 100%. I was completely open to experimenting and having the truth revealed of that to me. And I went through a ceremony one time to do that very thing. And I testify to you now that I never felt unclean as a result of doing any of the things that they taught me uh, would make you unclean. The only time I felt unclean was if I sinned. And when I did sin, the only way that I ever felt clean again was by the blood of Jesus when I repented. Um, the ceremony to make me clean again was I used all the discernment and all the feelings of my heart and soul and the understanding of my mind. And I tell you that it was an empty ritual and it had zero effect on me. I could feel that in my heart, it was a delusion. The letters of Paul would have refuted many of their beliefs regarding clean and unclean. So the Apostle Paul was made a heretic, uh, a son of perdition. Say goodbye to a significant portion of the New Testament. So none of these fallen watchers, including most of their byproducts, like plastic, were allowed down in the village. However, there were many exceptions made, depending on the need or the convenience, which I found a little odd. Especially bad was the hypocrisy that came when there were allowances made for certain people, but not others. Though the community was supposed to operate on the principle of all things in common, with no poor among them, uh, there were definitely the haves and the have-nots in this community. I could plainly see it for myself, and even the long-time devoted members of the community admitted this. Though the use of these fallen watchers were supposed to make you unclean and basically poison your mind and your heart, your spirit, the cult leader would spend day after day, week after week, month after month, driving a caterpillar earth mover around, digging up ponds because he deemed it necessary. When he didn't do that, he would ride around in one of the automobiles that the community owned to run errands and make purchases. But never at any time did he himself become unclean. I don't know how he was able to avoid it, and the rest of us could not. And for a community that is supposed to love repentance and be open to having someone else tell you what you need to repent of. This was a quintessential teaching of the community. 
I never once saw its leader have any repentance to do, except for the times when he confessed one himself, which never turned out to actually be something he was actually doing wrong. Uh, somehow it was always that he was actually right, and he just had repent of uh, doubting himself. Somehow he was right, even when he was wrong. And there were times where he was plainly in the wrong, and everyone community knew it. But would he repent? No. These things I would not discover until going to live among these people. Looking back, I was much more open to believing in this strange little group because I'd been very much wounded by certain priesthood and leadership in the church for following after truth and just believing in the scriptures over the traditions of men. And being young, I didn't really know how to take that rejection or it was uh, a difficult trial for me. And I have since matured in that, but uh, it was hard times. It hurt a lot. I won't go into the details of that here, but uh, when I was investigating this community, the people seemed very sympathetic and their prophet even told me uh, we would never do that to someone here. Uh, we would never question someone's spiritual relationship with God or tell them that you weren't hearing from the Lord. Uh, this would turn out to be a lie because whatever you heard from the Lord would have to match what their prophet believed or you weren't really hearing from the Lord correctly. But before going to live there and witness the truth of their existence, uh, when I would go and visit with these people, everyone there appeared to be very kind and considerate and loving. And I want to make this clear. They were. Most of them were just the wonderful people. They were a broken uh, people with a lot of injuries themselves, a lot of hurts um, and a lot of self-doubts. And uh, living in this community and following this guy made them feel special. But they themselves were very kind individuals, and I really appreciate my time among them. After moving there, I would discover what the phrase, misery loves company, really means. It became apparent almost immediately once I moved there and lived among them that everyone in this community was severely depressed. I would also add that they were very much oppressed by their leader, who was really a tyrant who would manipulate situations to maintain control, um, rewarding those who would keep other people in line, basically. And anyone who dared question him would soon come to regret it. He could essentially make decisions that would normally be a personal one in nature, reserved for a man and his family to decide for themselves, and thereby make their life miserable. By the admission of many of them later on, after leaving this community, they had put on a happy face for their visitors because they deeply needed me and others to come and join them, both to validate in their own mind that their sacrifice and beliefs weren't for nothing, but also in the desperate hope that maybe fresh blood would bring some much needed change. My first year living among them, I began to clearly see that they were indeed under wretched spiritual oppression. 
which would eventually come to affect me as well. I mean, in time, like Elijah, I, I literally prayed to God one time, asking him to take my life. The first several months I lived there, I was in high demand by the community's residents. I was frequently asked to come and, and minister, anoint with oil and pray over them. And sometimes uh, because of physical ailments, but mostly for the aforementioned depression. By the time that I arrived and actually moved in, all of the men who had lived there for 15 years were now recently being punished by their prophet. So they were no longer allowed to minister. They were all on a seven year ritual to be made clean again. Not only could they not minister, but they effectively were not allowed to make any real decisions for themselves or their family. The shame of it was palpable. And one day as I sat in a work crew meeting with the men, I realized that they were spiritually and mentally castrated. The high priest, prophet, and leader of this community was always off working on his various projects. The people that lived there seldom ever called upon him for prayer when they were in need. And I asked several of them why this was. I mean, why would they call upon me to pray over them and not him? And I was told that when they had briefly asked him, he would often not show up for days or if he came at all. Having come from an RLDS church culture, this lack of care seemed foreign to me. Additionally, I think they privately feared that he might have some repentance for them. This was a favorite exercise in this community, and especially from the leader. You see, if you were sick or depressed or your dog got run over by a wagon, it was a good opportunity for the leader to discern that there was some sin in your life. Repentance or giving repentance to each other, basically being told by someone else what your sin is, was a constant in that community. And according to the law that they lived by, you were not allowed to refute any repentance that was given to you, argue against it, or try to tell someone that they were wrong, uh, but instead you had to receive it. So to defend yourself was called dishonoring repentance. And I could see that this premise had been weaponized. I was a newbie there, brand new. Uh, I was supposed to be learning their ways, the ways of Zion, but they were in so much need of ministry. The people there looked to me for relief and for answers. If this was supposed to be Zion, I thought to myself, then something had gone terribly wrong. There's a hymn that we used to sing in the RLDS church about, I think it was about what Zion would be like one day. Um, and I remember as I was ministering to these people uh, and the oppression that they were feeling, the depression that they were going through, a line from that song kept running around in my head. And that line was, what a happy people we will be. I eventually began to ask people, if we live in Zion and are more righteous than any other people on earth, why they would be so sad and depressed? The answer they gave me was always the same, no matter who I asked and made me think that someone had taught this to them. They would tell me that the devil will attack and oppress the righteous. And so they called it being under opposition. This never sat right with me. 
either logically or from a scriptural basis. I mean, I understand that the devil will seek to oppress the righteous, uh, but when we're born again in our heart and mind, we should have that peace that passes all understanding, and we should experience the joy of the redeemed. I saw none of this joy in the community. While it is true that as believers we will experience days when we are going through trials, and uh, but this oppression that they experienced, it was a constant among the people in the community. The church building there was a Navajo-influenced Hogan-shaped building. So when we worshipped, we sat in a circle, you know, facing each other, looking at the faces before me every Sabbath. It was not uncommon to see almost every single one of them looking exhausted and depressed. I would look at their faces and something deep inside me would tell me, Doug, this isn't right. Let's travel back in time now and return to the great state of Michigan where I resided before moving to the cult in Iowa. I had the best job of my life I had wonderful friends and family there, as well as a little house church uh, that met in our townhouse apartment. And the fellowship that uh, I enjoyed there gave me some measure of relief from the grief that I occasionally experienced in the institutional church. And I had received the book that this little community in Iowa had published. And my wife and I had visited this community in Iowa a couple of times. And the last time I had visited, it was right after 9-11. I recall that there was no air traffic because all the airplanes were grounded nationwide. And I remember this because the residents of the community made remarks about it. They seemed pleased by this as if it was a blessing to see no planes or contrails in the sky. And looking back, I, I think 9-11 may have had played a role in how I was viewing the times in which we were living. It certainly conjured up thoughts and concerns regarding the fall of Babylon. And around this time, my wife would decide that she was done with this world and wanted to come out of Babylon and join this community. And I was willing to do whatever God wanted me to do. But as was my custom, I waited upon the spirit for an answer. I was sitting at work when an email from the community's prophet landed in my inbox. You see, I'd had concerns that I had voiced to him regarding debts that I had and and also a new car loan. This prophet told me that he had inquired of the Lord and, and that God had told him that I should come immediately, that there was a great work for me to do, that I should not concern myself with the affairs of Babylon. He told me not to worry about that debt, just come and God would take care of it, for it was better to honor God than to honor Babylon. He told me those credit card companies had taken advantage of me. They were thieves, and I'd probably already paid them back anyway with all the interest that I'd paid out. And deep down inside, I wanted this to be real. My wife was ready. She was waiting on me. This was my first wife. It seemed to me that the church was going nowhere. I had been beaten up for simply believing the Bible and the Book of Mormon, or for speaking the words uh, that the Holy Spirit gave me. The people in Iowa, well, they seemed very sincere and willing to sacrifice everything to serve God. And after regarding, and after 
reading that email, I, I sincerely asked God for an answer, telling him that I wasn't sure if this was right, but if he wanted me to go, all he had to do was tell me. And that's when I heard the voice of God speak to me. He said just one word, go. I was so moved by that experience that I stood up feeling like I, I had to tell someone, but who I, I was at work. I wandered over to a Christian coworker and stood next to her cubicle, just pausing there for a moment. I was speechless and she looked up and she said, did God just speak to you? Uh, that kind of flabbergasted me. And I was like, and I ended up nodding to her. Yes. And uh, how did you know? And she replied, because your face is glowing like Moses. Well, that seemed like a confirmation I needed. Um, we would soon be moving to Iowa and we would spend two years there. The first year would be me trying to make things work and discovering that there was something very wrong. The second year would be me confronting those things, questioning and, and even taking some stands. Ultimately, the thing that brought me out of the community was the same thing that had caused me to move there in the first place. It was the voice of the Lord. For Christ had appeared to me while I was on a four-day fast, uh, staying in a teepee that was located at a remote location away from the community's village. And I was purposely isolated from any contact from any people during that fast. And it was on the third night that Jesus appeared to me three different times. When he made that appearance to me and I knew who he was, I was afraid to look up and look into his eyes because I did not feel worthy. But he spoke to me and he asked me or commanded to leave that place and to go to Missouri where he had a work for me to do. Three times this happened and all three times I was afraid to look at his face, but his presence was there and the light of his body filled the uh, teepee. A year later, having gone through the Lord's deprogramming and coming to grips with the fact that this sealed book and the doctrines associated with it and its community were indeed a deception. I asked God about the day that when he answered my prayer in Michigan, telling me to go to the community. It was a very powerful experience. And uh, I wondered though, if I wasn't deceived in that, and perhaps it was the voice of the adversary that I had heard, but the spirit answered my question and assured me that I had indeed heard his voice that day, that when he told me to go, he never at any time expressed or an approval of the community or the correctness of their teachings. Instead, he had sent me there because I needed to go. You see, if I hadn't have gone, I, I would have been ensnared in that deception for years. I needed to go because of the hurt that I suffered in the church. And because of the desires on my heart, God knew the quickest way for me to learn the truth was to go there and see. Additionally, he would use the experience to teach me about myself and 
the nature of deception. In time, it would allow me to help others who are facing other deceptions by the adversary. I also came to realize that others who were exploring these teachings were able to benefit from my experience there. More than one person would actually express the idea to me that I had been sent to that community partly for their sake to uncover the truth that they might know. Finally, as an extra bonus, and I just love how God works, a few years after we left that community, my wife and I went back for a visit while the leader was away on a trip. I thought perhaps only a couple of members there would be interested in visiting us. We had let one of them know that we would come and, and uh, talk with them for a bit. But when we arrived, we found out that almost everyone, except for a few of the most hardened supporters of the leader, were down at the church waiting for our arrival. When we entered the church, smiles and joyful faces greeted us. They wanted to hear all about our adventures, and they also had many questions for us. And it was a real joy visiting with them as people regaled a number of humorous stories from our time there. And they also shared some adventures they had had outside of the community. Apparently, a number of them had gone on some trips and reconnected with family members and, and gotten away. I noticed that there was a shift there in how people were thinking, but I never would have anticipated what was about to happen next. About a year after our visit, there was a mass exodus from this community. More than half of its members left and moved into town. I drove up to Iowa to meet them. My sister, who lived in town, held a get-together at her house, and many of the people who had left were longtime members, and their children, uh, some of them had been there for close to 20 years. And at this get-together, these people were finally able to express their true feelings without fear and admit that many of the teachings of the community were lies. These discussions seemed to be therapeutic for them, you know, like a support group, and it was good to see them again. Additionally, there was something expressed by a few of them that was deeply impactful regarding my own perspective of the time that I spent there in community. You see, I was told that many of those times when I had expressed concerns while living in the community, or asked questions, or took a stand, or quoted scripture in response to some new doctrine or statement made by their leader, that it had an effect on them, that it had planted seeds which would eventually become a part of their journey of self-discovery and questioning things for themselves. I would play a role in their coming out of this deception. And interestingly, before making the decision to move to this community, I was given a spiritual dream that I did not understand at that time. I shared it with the elders of the community at the time that I had the dream, and they interpreted it to their favor, making it all about how I needed to come join them. However, uh, this explanation never really made any sense. And what I did not know was that a dear friend had received the interpretation by way of the Spirit, 
but was told to wait until I came back out of the community again to share it. When he did share it with me, everything in the dream fell into place. It made perfect sense. I was astonished to find that God had given me a dream before I ever left to go to Iowa that revealed his hand at work leading me through this entire experience of moving from Michigan to this community in Iowa and then on to Missouri where I now reside. See, in the dream, I was on my way to Missouri riding a bus. Along the way to Missouri, the bus stopped at a whorehouse. Everyone went into the whorehouse, and we were promised a good time and told to strip off our clothes. I did not want to remove my clothes, and so in the dream, I purposely made an effort to take my wallet and hide it in my socks so that I would not be robbed. I'm not sure why I, how I knew that this was going to happen, but no women arrived. Instead, um, a number of armed men burst into the room and they took everyone's money. They did not find my wallet. They then placed us in handcuffs and walked us into a fake city where we were to live. All of the buildings in this uh, fake city were facades, like on a movie set, you know, where you have the front side of a building and that the camera can see, but there's no substance to it, nothing on the back end. I realized that I could easily slip out of their handcuffs. But whenever I did so, they became very agitated and afraid and they would point their guns at me. And so I allowed them to place the handcuffs back on. But no matter how tightly they tried to make those handcuffs, it was easy to slip out of them. And I just decided to pretend like I couldn't get free just to alleviate their fears and have them leave me be, and then I could await the right opportunity to escape. In the dream, the whorehouse represented trading in the treasures of God, even the scriptures of the word of God, which was represented in it by my wallet. And the clothing that they wanted us to take off was the clothing of righteousness that we can only get from Christ. And by doing so, by not accepting his righteousness and instead uh, trying to make their own righteousness through their dead works. They were naked. Getting back to the treasures or the wallet or the money in this community, in order to follow this man's teachings, you eventually had to be willing to trade in all of the scriptures, even the Book of Mormon, in favor of the word of this one man and his published works. His words, his experiences, his doctrines, they were the new gold standard. And so this one man trumped all of our scriptures. And this brings us to red flag number five. Run from any man, institution, or group, or teaching that places the word of some man or prophet or leader as being the gold standard, which will trump all previous revelation or scripture. If this is where your faith is, then you have no foundation. And you have placed your trust in man. And as Nephi and Jeremiah both tell us, cursed are those who place their trust in man. While I was in this community, I never gave up the word of God, especially the Book of Mormon. I knew there were issues in the Old Testament, and I knew there were issues in the Doctrine and Covenants. But when he began to call into question the Book of Mormon, I told him to his face 
that if he was now going to erode away at our faith in the Book of Mormon, he was eroding away at his own religion. For if we cannot trust the Book of Mormon itself, then there was no reason for us to even believe there was any such person as the brother of Jared or a sealed record. The fake city in this dream represented the false Zion that he was trying to engineer. It was a mirage and not real. The handcuffs represented the constraints that were placed on members by its extreme doctrines meant to control them, which never did constrain me. The guns the men pointed at us represented the various threats to its members that they would receive in order to keep them in line, that if they ever questioned or disobeyed their prophet. And when we prepared to leave for Missouri, many prophesied to us that we would soon die as independence would be blown up. There was always threats attached to not being obedient. What I told the leader and prophet of this community about my experience, the experience I had where Christ came and spoke to me and told me to go to Missouri, he told me that I needed to just stay there in the community. Perplexed, I carefully explained my experience again. You know, maybe he didn't hear something just right. So I went to great length to explain that Christ told me to do this. But he once again insisted that I should not leave, but follow his directions instead. As I walked out of the building and followed after him, I said what needed to be said in that moment. I told him, look, if I choose to ignore Christ, what he has told me, in order to follow your direction instead, that would make you my God. He became angry and stormed off. Sadly, I wasn't sensing any concern for me or my welfare. Instead, I discerned that he was only thinking about how this might affect his plans to grow his little community. And it was rather obvious that he wasn't used to someone standing up to him and, and not backing down. So red flag number six, if you are being taught to follow some man, even one whom people claim to be a prophet over and above the scriptures or the voice of the spirit that you should hear for yourself, you are in a cult. And I don't care if it's a gentleman's cult or it has nice programs or friendly people doing what some may deem to be good works, or even if that cult has millions of members, if you are following after a man, you are building on a sandy foundation. You are following a man. You are not following Christ. I was supposed to work that day, but after my interaction with Ron, the community's prophet, I had a feeling of urgency that I should return home to my wife. And when I returned to the small cabin my wife and I lived in, in this community, I arrived just in time to see Ron drop in uh, and taking another man with him to speak to my wife. And ignoring me completely, he spoke directly to her. He refused to acknowledge me or even look me in the eye. He spoke about me in the third person as if I wasn't even there. He was furious, anger visibly shown on his face and in his voice as he talked about me. And he spoke right past me, telling my wife that I was disobedient and needed to repent, uh, that I was not hearing from the spirit correctly and, and that I could no longer be trusted. I said nothing at this point, but I marveled as I realized that 
What I was experiencing in that moment was exactly what the other men in the community had gone through once upon a time when he had effectively neutered them, having managed to get their wives to side with him in order to subdue the husband. I felt nothing but complete peace as I waited for him to say what he would and then leave. As it turned out, this power play had a opposite effect on my wife than he intended. Uh, she wasn't furious uh, with me, uh, but at him. She loved the people in the community, and I honestly couldn't have been entirely sure whether or not I might lose our marriage over obedience to Christ. There were other women who had divorced their unbelieving husbands, but as it turned out, she felt in her heart that I was right with God. In fact, uh, she was so upset by how he had treated me that she demanded to leave the community immediately. I knew we would need to make arrangements to move, but I also had a feeling that there were some things that God wanted us to do before we parted ways with these people. It would not be easy. I mean, we would be looked down on, talked about, but the spirit seemed to be leading me not to just cut and run, but to take a stand for the truth and have the opportunity to bear witness. She eventually agreed on a two-week timeline for moving out, though she was not happy about it. Some strange things happened in those last two weeks that we were there. The community believed in what they called languages of repentance which essentially amounted to omens or signs that you had need to repent. It could be an owl showing up or a personal injury of some kind. Each kind of sign or the place that you got injured at was supposed to be translated to mean a very specific thing. Of course, regardless of what people thought something meant, it was always subject to reinterpretation by the leader. And as people in the community began to talk amongst themselves about us in rather unkind or judgmental ways, you know, not just saying that I was deceived, for example, which could have been true from their point of view, but saying things like Doug just doesn't want to do his repentance, etc. As they began to discuss what they perceived to be my sins, the community began to experience a number of incidents of this, what they would term language of repentance in correspondence with them talking behind my back. The fascinating thing about it was that each instance when applying simple logic and the community's own teachings regarding these things, uh, any rational human being would be forced to conclude that God was calling them and not me to repentance. There was a man named Morgan who was from Utah. He was from LDS background. He left the community not too long after I did. And about a year later, while visiting with me, he stopped in to see me. He related some of the incidents of language repentance that people had experienced surrounding my departure that I hadn't heard about yet. He then commented that by the teachings of the community itself, these should have been clear indications that they were wrong about me. So I'll relate just one of those incidents here. And this is actually one that I was aware of before I left. And my wife and I had to go to town one day to get some boxes from the local grocery store so we could begin packing. 
there was only one time a week when you could do this, and we had to go that week in order to be ready to move. Uh, the community was celebrating what they called in-gathering that week. And as our closest neighbors stood outside conversing about us, by their own admission, they were doing this. After we had left to go to town and talking about how awful it was that we were leaving during their sacred week to go into town and how I was being disobedient and leaving the community, they were suddenly struck by lightning. I kid you not. Now, no one died, uh, but they were shaken up and suffered some effect from it. And when we returned, I got an earful from one of the men who blamed me for this incident. Apparently it was my sin or need of repentance that almost got them killed. Uh, I shook my head in disbelief and I told this man, I don't know what God that you're worshiping here in this community, but my God doesn't strike innocent people down for the sins of others. After spending a year there, I, I knew there were some major issues. I didn't fully understand the extent of those issues yet, but I got the feeling, even before Jesus appeared, that we would probably be leaving this community eventually. And during our second year there, as I got more and more clarification from the Spirit on why some of these doctrines were contrary to the gospel of Christ, it seems almost as if the Spirit caused many of the members of this community to just put a, a lot of trust into me and share some of their secrets. Things which would uh, not only confirm what the Spirit was telling me, but further reveal problems that I didn't know about and, and things that no outsider or visitors or any of the new people would, that joined the group would ever know. Like in the dream that I had been given before going to community, where I pretended to keep my handcuffs on in order to alleviate the fears of the guards, the community's senior members and its prophet placed their trust in me and, and began to open up to share things with me that would be a red flag for any reasonable person. They never suspected that I was about to leave, that I was about to be free of what they believed that my handcuffs were slipping off. One of those things was the aforementioned story of how the community was actually born on a false prophecy. But another secret that was revealed was when Ron, the community's prophet, who had translated the sealed portion, revealed to me one day, while I was driving him around, that he had actually made the Urim and Thummim that he had. He described to me how he did it and where he bought the two crystal stones or the eyepieces. And I was blown away because in a rather lengthy introduction at the beginning of the sealed book, Ron describes very clearly how Christ appeared to him and gave him the Urim and Thummim. So I questioned him to make sure I understood. In fact, I told him that his testimony in the book would sounded like Christ gave him the Yerman Thummim. And Ron explained that God helped him to uh, make it, so it was really the same thing as him giving it to him. Um, no, not the same. And he surely knew better than that. 
why would God have someone make a Urim and Thummim anyway, or, or a new set of interpreters, or whatever you want to think, the interpreter stones, uh, if they were already included with the record, even as Joseph Smith had received? Why would you make another set? What was the point? But I kept my mouth shut. I, I was gaining knowledge that I would need to know to come to certain determinations. Red flag number six. When a religious leader lies to you because they have decided the general public cannot handle the truth, this is a major issue. Do not overlook it. There is no excuse. Look, it's one thing to be discreet and leave out sharing something that people may not be ready for, as in, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine. But in this case, Ron decided not only to make specific mention of where he got the Urim Thummim, which if he just left it unsaid, people of Mormon faith and background would just assumed it came with a record. I mean, that's where you would expect to find it. We know that the Urim and Thummim or the interpreter stones were with the plates, so why would we think otherwise? But instead, he chose to publish a lie. Jesus gave him the Urim and Thummim. And well, he knew that people would assume it was the Urim and Thummim and not one that Ron had manufactured. So that's going a little bit above and beyond just holding something back. It is a lie. Also, just for your general knowledge, he also never received the plates, but got the record off the back of a bug. As in looking at patterns and shapes on the back and the wings of an insect is the manner in which God apparently, according to his testimony, Ron's testimony, received the record. I guess one is left to wonder why the brother of Jared bothered to write on plates at all, or why it was included with the small plates of the Book of Mormon that were given to Joseph Smith, or why King Benjamin kept them, that they should not, quote, come into the world until after Christ should show himself. Or why, after Christ showed himself unto his people, he commanded that the sealed record should be made manifest? Or why Moroni bothered to seal them back up again for when the Gentiles truly repent and exercise faith like the brother of Jared? I mean, why maintain this record through all the millennia if the record can be extracted using a manufactured Yerman Thummim and looking at the back of a bug? Well, you're probably beginning to see that plainly there were some issues, but recognize that most deceptions will not be predicated on such strange or wild schemes as this. And in fact, it is those deceptions that are much more clever and designed to look as if they are fulfilling scripture, prophecy, or your own religious expectations that we must be most vigilant of. As my brother in Christ, Jacob Isbell, once said, Satan will teach as high a percentage of truth, even truth that is uncommon, that the masses don't know, as long as the net result is a greater deception. This episode is getting quite long, so I will end here with some truths from the Book of Mormon that could have greatly alleviated my confusion over the cult and its deceptions regarding the sealed record, along with every claim that has ever been made and will be made about the sealed record coming forth. 
in the book of Ether, which is a shorthand account of the brother of Jared, where we get the history behind the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon that has yet to come forward, we learn that the brother of Jared sealed up his record not to come forth until after Christ revealed himself. And the Lord commanded the brother of Jared to go down out of the mount from the presence of the Lord and write the things which he had seen. And they were forbidden to come unto the children of men until after he should be lifted upon the cross. And for this cause did King Benjamin keep them, that they should not come unto the world until after Christ should show himself unto his people. And after Christ truly had showed himself unto his people, he commanded that they should be made manifest. So here we see that Jesus manifested the sealed record to the Nephites, but only after the wicked or the more wicked were destroyed and Jesus had come and revealed himself. There is a pattern in this. So be on the lookout for it because this is a type and shadow for us in regards to when we shall see it come forth once more. And the scripture goes on and says, And now, after that, they have all dwindled in unbelief, speaking of the Nephites. And there is none, save it be the Lamanites, and they have rejected the gospel of Christ. Therefore I am commanded that I should hide them up again in the earth. So that which was sealed is sealed again. When will it come forth, though? Let's continue on. And he commanded me that I should seal them up. And he also hath commanded that I should seal up the interpretation thereof. Therefore, I have sealed up the interpreters according to the commandment of the Lord. For the Lord said unto me, They shall not go forth unto the Gentiles until the day that they shall repent of their iniquity and become clean before me. And in that day that they shall exercise faith in me, saith the Lord, even as the brother of Jared did, that they may become sanctified in me. Then will I manifest unto them the things which the brother of Jared saw, even to the unfolding unto them all my revelations, saith Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, and all things that are in them. And this is what Moroni wrote. And so as we can see, uh, we need to ask ourselves, have the Gentiles truly repented? And do you think that they are currently exercising faith even as the brother of Jared did? What kind of faith did the brother of Jared have? The faith of the brother of Jared allowed him to see Christ even face to face. Now here is the final hint about the timing of the sealed portion that come forth. Wherefore, because of the things which are sealed up, the things which are sealed shall not be delivered in the day of the wickedness and abominations of the people. Now let me ask you a simple question. If someone out there is claiming to have translated the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, then I would say, ask yourself, are we in a day of wickedness and abominations? If so, then that record will not be brought forth. And the claim that you are hearing is a lie. The sealed portion, the record of the brother of Jared, was brought forth once before. 
It was only after the destruction of the more wicked people and after great judgments had happened and tribulation and darkness on the land. And then Christ appeared among them, showed himself in his resurrected form. And he taught them personally. And, and after that, he revealed to them the sealed record. And after this, we see the golden age of the Nephites, which, you know, maybe I guess you could, you could say is akin to the millennial reign, but on a much smaller scale. But it was a great time of righteousness among the Nephites. And because of this, and the statement that this record will not come forth in a time of wickedness and abominations, I do not expect that we shall see this record uh, with the forbidden knowledge that is in it until after Zion is established and Christ reveals himself to his people. May the Lord bless you this day.